Thank you so much, and I don't say thank you just because I'm supposed to say thank you. It's the right thing to do. It's nice. I really, really mean this. Thank you for committing to the study of the Word of God, no matter who's teaching it, no matter what teacher is in this place. When the Word of God is being taught, thank you for honoring God enough and putting the Word of God ahead of other things in your life not honoring how we feel and what time it is and, and, you know, it's difficult, but honoring God enough to be here. God will and does and will continue to bless you as you set yourself before him to receive from his word. So be expecting blessings. Be expecting increase in God's work and his revelation of the effectiveness of the gospel in your life and through your life to others. This morning we continue in our study of Genesis, as we talked this morning about man in God's image, we are finally coming to the very central place, the very reason, the very epicenter, the climax, climax of, of creation as we begin to look this morning at Genesis 1.26. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this incredible word and it's incredible because you are incredible. Father, it's an awesome word because you are awesome. Father, it's a loving word because you are loving. Father, it's a wondrous, healing, ministering, effective word because this is who you are. Father, your word is who you are to us. Your communication of your very self to us, Father. Father, may we see that the words of this volume are not just words on a page. They are your personal, intimate communication and fellowship with us. Father, that we would more and more by your spirit be setting ourselves before your presence, making ourselves more available to drink in more of you. Father, all of us who are parents, Grandparents have probably experienced as the children get older, they don't spend as much time with us. They don't sit on our laps. They're not the same with us as they were when they were kids, and that's good to some extent. But Father, how many parents or grandparents would say or would be thinking or hoping, oh, that my sweetheart would spend more time with me? Father, is this your heart for us? And we know it is. Father, you're saying to us, oh, sweethearts, spend more time with me. Spend more time with me. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning, spending more time with you, through your word, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, now that we've begun to have a greater understanding that God is one in his being. There is only one God, one and only God, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's the only God out there. Remember, we discussed that last week. And so as we see that understanding and also the understanding that in God's oneness, there is a plurality. 
God is not a single person God. As I've said before, and I'll repeat it so many times because I think it's absolutely critical and essential, the single issue, the single truth that separates Christianity, obviously Judaism, but they haven't seen the rest of it, Christianity from every other religion, the single most important revelation that God has for us about himself is that he is not a single person God, that he is a plurality, a tri-person God, three persons. And so you may think, well, the cross is the most important thing. The love of God is the most important thing. The Holy Spirit is, no, all of that is a result of him being a triune God. If he were a single person God, none of that would be possible. So you see, we get down to the very basis. So this morning we come to this finale of God's purpose in creation when we look at verse 26 of chapter 1. God's goal in creating man. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. See, this verse if there's any one controlling verse as to God's purpose, if there is any one controlling, central, overarching, umbrella verse as to God's purpose for our lives, this is it. If you're trying to figure out who we are, what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to do it, when we're supposed to do it, with whom we're supposed to do it, and all the other stuff about ourselves, if you were looking for that answer, stop looking. Go to Genesis 1.26, and in that verse is gathered up everything about man, his purpose, his function, and the result of what our lives would be. Everything. Anything that you see in the Bible concerning man in relation to God and God in relation to man. And I think that's the rest of the Bible, isn't it? Anything you see in the Bible about God in relation to man and man in relation to God. Every question that you can ask about that, everything about that is answered in verse 26 of chapter 1 of Genesis. Now, what is an image? I think we all know that. An image is a visible impression obtained by a camera or displayed on a video screen or produ produced by reflection. How many of you know that when we get up in the morning, we look in the mirror, and there's a frightening image? Anybody ever see a frightening image in the mirror in the morning? Only you. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for raising your hand. Only one person, but you know, it's an image. It is a reproduction of who the other person or the other thing is. It is a faithful, accurate, and true picture or representation. We know what an image is. It is a true and accurate representation, a picture, a reflecting of the original. This is what God created man to be. This is our call and our reason for being. A copy, we are to be a true and faithful, consistent, compelling reflection, image of the original, of God. This is why obedience is so central. This is why our relationship to one another is so critical. 
it all is about God. Everything of a believer's life speaks or is to speak about God. Either we will be speaking about God truthfully or our life will be speaking lies about God. Every time you and I are jealous, we are saying God is a jealous in, an un, uh, in a sinful way. Every time we're uh, 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 competitive in the wrong way, we're saying God is that way. Every time we want to steal or think poor thoughts or lustful thoughts or we want to do anything wrong, our lives as believers in Christ are saying this is who God is. You see, this is the dastardly dangerous and destructive work of sin. It's not so much how it impacts me and one another. It's how it, what it says about God. This is the issue of sin. So please, let's get the real issue of sin. And let's take the issue of sin off the table that it's about us primarily. It's primarily about God. Why? Because we are his image bearers. Is it about us? Yes. Does it affect us? Yes. All of that, but we are secondary to the primary issue that it's about God. And may I move along, please? <clears throat> In our image, after our likeness, God's tr man's true identity and meaning and purpose on earth. This is why we're here. Someone asked you why we're here? What we're supposed to be doing? Quote Genesis 1:26 for you. We don't have to give a whole theological dissertation, go through the whole Bible. Just go to that verse and begin to communicate what that means. And the Holy Spirit will do a great job. You see, we are to be a true and accurate reflection individually and corporately of who God is in himself. If you look at verses 26 of chapter 1, and then 27 and 28 of chapter 1, and then 215 of chapter 2, obviously, we're going to talk very briefly about three main categories in which God, man is God's image. We're going to go through these very quickly, and what we're going to do over the next several weeks, we're going to develop these. So if you say, well, wait a minute, what does that mean? What does that mean? Can you get? We're going to elucidate or unpack these issues over the next several weeks. So this morning, all we're doing is kind of throwing out some information, and we'll come back over the next several weeks and unpack them. So don't get nervous. I would, if I were you, looking at this, what does this mean? How does this work? I've never heard this before. I don't understand it. We'll do that as we go through the material. So there are three ways that man's function is to image God. Verse 26, we are to image God's rule. Let them, or man, have dominion, rule, dominion and rule over the fish of the sea, etc., etc., and everything that creeps on the earth. First thing we are to image when we are God's image is to image God's rule, God's sovereignty. Man was created to rule over the earth. We were created to do that. That's the first thing. Second thing, God's relationship, the relationship that God has within himself among the three persons of God. The way we are as a community is to live in such a way that images the heavenly community. Again, why is it so critically important that we love one another and care for one another and relate to one another and fellowship with one another? Why? Because this is a direct reflection and image of the way the three persons of God relate and function and fellowship. 
And so God's relationship, verses 27 and 28, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And then God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, heavens and over the every living thing that moves upon the earth. So he says, be fruitful and multiply in that you see an, an allusion to husband and wife in relationship, be fruitful and multiply. We will see that in this command, <clears throat> God is not telling Adam just to have a lot of kids. There's something more astoundingly important than, hey, Christians are supposed to have a lot of kids. No birth control methods, just a lot of kids. Well, maybe that's a separate issue, but that's not the depth of this. There's something here that our lives as image of the God of God is to be reproduced in others. And as others come up to become the image of God, they are to reproduce others. And that is to begin to move in such a way that God's image fills the earth. You see something of evangelism in there. Do, do you see that? The filling of the earth through the image of God, uh, the uh, filling of the earth with the image of God through our multiplying, witnessing, making disciples to kind of give you a taste of what's coming. There it is, right there, that whole reason for our being. The next one. God's worship, 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. You see, man's working and keeping the garden was man's acknowledgement of God's ownership as he cultivated the place of God's dwelling. Now let's note the means of God's ability to accomplish this. How does God accomplish his means here, his purpose? He does it through a very specific way. Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You may not eat. I'm sorry, you may eat and you may not eat. There's one way God gives man only one way to enter and to enjoy and to participate in fellowship with him. There's only one way. That one way is called obedience. Why, why would I emphasize that so much this morning? Because I think that what happens in Christianity is this. Some kind of way we have seen the gospel in a way that has either omitted or diluted the necessity of obedience. Obedience is, was, and always shall be the very centerpiece of our responsibility to God. It has been, it is, and it always will be the centerpiece of our responsibility and our ability to fellowship with God. And I see, when I look at the church, a great weakening here. Oh, I know, but I'm forgiven. Oh, I know that, but. And those buts are breaking down the fabric of our ability and the activity and the revelation of, our, of God being 
of us being in God's image. It is fracturing the very thing for which we have been created. Today, maybe as a result of this class, let's look at our lives and let's make sure as we go before God and rely on the Holy Spirit that our individual and corporate obedience is at the best grace-filled, motivated, and grace-filled, empowered place that it can be. Are there areas of my life where I'm being disobedient? Am I doing things that I shouldn't be doing? That's disobedience. Am I living in a way in relationships or acting or thinking or looking or whatever in disobedience in any area? The very centerpiece of our place with God is obedience. And that still is maintained today. You see, the path of man's ability to image God is a path of obedience. This is and always will be God's way of fellowship with man. Remember 1 John 1, 6. He talks about obeying God as to our ability to have fellowship with God. Why? Because man's obedience, why is obedience so important? Why is our obedience so critical to be in an image of God? What is there about my and your obedience that is the fulcrum, the hub of my ability and my participation in the fellowship with God? What is it? You know where the answer is? Genesis 1.26. You've got to start thinking this way when it comes to the Bible. Carrie, what, what about Genesis 1.26? Because what does 1.26 say? We are the image of God, and my obedience is imaging something about God. Who is the obedient son? Who is he? Come on, you can say his name. Jesus is the obedient son. Lo, I have come to do thy will, O God. Remember that verse? I always do what my father tells me. Paul talked about the obedience of faith. You can't be saved unless you obey God's work of giving us faith to receive. You say, well, no, no, it's not obedience, it's faith. We must obey in faith. Faith is the obedient receiving of Christ. So let's not be confused about this. Let's make sure obedience is at a much better level than it used to be in a whole lot of lives. So what is my obedience saying about God in 126? It says that in God there is a role relationship in which the Son obeys the Father and the Spirit obeys the Son and the Father. There is that leading and following aspect within God himself. So, anybody ask you what is the central reason for obedience? Take them back to what verse? Genesis what? 126. Hopefully this expands us in the understanding of the word of God and our obedience to God. I'm giving you several verses here. <clears throat> You see, isn't this what Psalm 8 is saying about us? Listen to what Psalm 8 says. What or who is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man. Remember? The son of man, a hint. 
that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings or the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. When was this? This was in Eden. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. That was in Eden. You have put all things under his feet. That was in Eden. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field. You see and you remember the words of Genesis chapter 1 in those verses. And the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. You see, you hear Genesis. <clears throat> and you see that because of the fall, somebody else is going to undo what the fall did. And we're going to experience that again, except in a much greater way. Well, let's talk about the making of the image. We've talked a little bit about what does it mean to be in the image of God? What does that mean? Let's talk about God's activity of creating man. When we turn to chapter 2, remember chapter 2 begins verse 4. Just, you just have to kind of think that way. Chapter 2, so when I say chapter 2 of Genesis, what verse am I beginning with? Verse 4. When we come to chapter 2, verses 4 to 6, we have a summary of God's work before creating man. That's kind of a collection of what he's done there. It is not a new creation story as ding-dings say. It is the same story of chapter 1, yet from the perspective of God's personal involvement in the creation. Yes, he was involved personally in chapter 1, but here we will see a much deeper and purposeful work of God as he expands to us in chapter 2 what he did in chapter 1. Remember a couple of weeks ago, <clears throat> we said that chapter 1 is a kind of outline or skeleton of what God is doing. A day by day, he did this on day 1, day 2, day blah, 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 and all. And then we come back and say, now let me tell you some of the details of what he did in chapter 1. Let me fill in some of the blanks. So you're with me on this. And so some have said, because of these differences, this must mean it's a different author. I want you to see immediately what do we see in chapter verse 4 of chapter 2 concerning the name of God that we don't see in chapter 1 remember in chapter 1 God is referenced with what Hebrew word Elohim remember the plural Elohim that's it you won't find other than a pronoun in chapter 1 any reference to God outside of Elohim 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 and he 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 you know that's chapter 1 but in chapter 2, verse 4, remember, chapter 2, we begin to come to a much different kind of revelation about this God. And all of a sudden, how does chapter 2, verse 4 begin? Then what? The Lord God. The Lord God. The word Lord there is the name of God himself that we see given to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, you remember. It is Yahweh or Yah. Yahweh. It is the personal, relational, covenantial name of God. It is the name by which God himself makes himself known to Moses because before Moses, nobody was given this name. This is the first time that God gives his personal covenantial name to mankind. It's at Moses when he is about to establish his covenant with his nation. Not even to Abraham did he reveal this name. He revealed himself to Abraham, but not by the name of Yahweh. It's the covenantial, personal, relational name of God. 
So what does that say? That says that what we're going to get here is a description of God bringing into fruition this fellowshipping desire and uh, will of his in the creation of man. That man in the image of God will be a fellowshipping, in a fellowshipping relationship, a covenantial relationship with God. And I want to use the word covenantial relationship because one of the things we'll discover here is that the covenant begins right here in Genesis and flows all the way through to the new covenant, remember, established in, and uh, completed in Christ and culminating in Revelation 20, 21, 22, rather, 21 and 22. So you see a whole sweep here. Now, as we look at this section, verses 7 to 25, this is the section where God's creating the image is expanded and given detail, verses 7 to 25. As we look at this, <clears throat> we're going to concentrate on three particular verses, verse 7, verse 18, and verse 24. So we'll go down to verse 7, then we'll jump a little bit to 18 and 24, because between the two are fill in the blanks with more detail that we won't cover today. We've already covered some of them. So verse 7. So what does the word say? In verse 7, the Lord God began to create whom? Man. And it gives the details of how he does that. And we won't go into the details today. You remember, it was a dirty work. It was a dirty job. You know? Now look. Think about it. Think about it. God gets down in the dirt with us. It's just amazing. God gets his hands dirty, if you will. And he creates this man. You know, I remember a story somewhere where Jesus took some dirt, <coughs> spit in it. Well, he did, yeah. And he put it on the face of the man. And when he washed it off, the man could see. You remember chapter nine of what, John? I just wonder if that was a creative miracle like this. I just wonder if that man were born congenitally without any eye sockets. Because the parents say, we're not sure. We're not sure if that's our son. Look, but you know, we're not sure. I don't know, but could be. But look at chapter 2, verse 7. And before we go into any more detail, where does this happen? Go back to Genesis chapter 1 and look at verse 26. <clears throat> and what does the Lord say in verse 26? Let us make man. Now, what, what, what uh, tense is that? It's a present tense. It is a, it is a comment of what we're going to do, correct? Let me make lunch. Now, have you made lunch yet? Have you made lunch yet? No, it means that's what you're going to do, Anna. I'm going to make lunch. So verse 26 is what I'm going to do. Now, look at verse 27. What does verse 27 says? I made lunch. D do you get it? Roger, you see that? And what does verse 27 say? And the Lord God did what? He what? Created. What verse um, tense is uh, created? Past. So I'm going to do it in verse 26. I done did it in verse 27. 
Now, for those of you from New Orleans, you know what I just said. For those of you from other places, it means his purpose in 26 was accomplished in 27, but we're not that intelligent. So I'm going to do it. I done did it, and that's it. It's a done deal. So there is a space between the two. I'm going to make lunch. I made lunch. Now, is something happening between those two comments? What's happening between I'm going to make lunch and I already did make lunch? Jazz, what's happening? The activity of making lunch. Are you with me on this? This isn't rocket science, you see. This is where so many fail to see how the Word of God must be applied to the Word of God. And Scripture must be put with Scripture because it comes together in a way that makes sense. So what's happening between verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1? What's happening are verses 7 to 25 of chapter 2. Don't you see? I don't know whether you've seen this or not before. And many don't see it this way. I'm going to make lunch. I made my lunch. I took out the bread. I put it in the toast. I put the mayonnaise on it. I threw the meat on there. I put it together, and I ate my That happens between I'm going to and I did. And so verses 7 to 25 is God filling in I'm going to and I did. They fall between verses 26 and 27. So you know what I would do if I were you and I do this in my Bible? I would put a little note between those two verses and put chapter 2, 7-25. You can write in your Bibles. It's a real good workbook. And in verses 7, I mean 8 to 17, because we said that the Lord is, you know, starts this in verse 7, and this is when he creates man. 8 to 17 give the description of the Garden of Eden, and remember the command that we just talked about in verses 16 and 17. You may eat, you may not eat. And remember, we've already talked about that. Then verse 18. Then the Lord said, It is not good for man to be alone. Now, think a second. Don't answer, please. Why isn't it good that God has just created Adam? isn't it good for Adam to be alone? Think, think. Where do you go for the answer? Genesis 1, 26. Are we getting this? Are we, are we beginning to get this down? Don't be scrambling through your concordance and through your theology books. I use concordance and I use theology books. But for this, you don't need a theology book. You simply need to know your Bible. Why isn't it good for Adam to be alone? Because of 126 says what? I'm making man in my image. And God is not a single person being. He is a community. And how many do you need minimally to be in community? How many do you need minimally to be in unity? How many do you need minimally to walk together? How many minimally do you need for fellowship? How many minimally do you need for the reality and the expression of love? Two. Minimally. I didn't say only, but what? Minimally, you've you got to have two. Now, wait a minute. Genesis chapter 1, it says 
it was very good but you see that verse falls after this verse in chapter 2 you see not good very good huh it's uh, these people in conflict God knows what he's doing doesn't he and he writes it in a way that it confuses those who don't know him and gives revelation and understanding and appreciation and power to those who know him aren't you glad that's what Isaiah said I'm going to keep it away from them who don't know me and I'm going to show it to my people why isn't it good because Adam cannot by himself and in himself be reflective of the community of God being a single person being he must have somebody with him and so what happens remember God creates another like Adam remember like in Adam's image like Adam so I will make him a helper suitable or fitting for him I will make him a helper and in the creation of the woman now God has on earth the beginning of a race of people who are to be on earth the earthly image in community of the heavenly God in community that's the beginning and Adam and Eve are to be the progenitors the beginners of a race of people who would fill the earth extending out from the garden extending the walls if you would or the domain of the garden all the way through the entire earth so that the entire earth is populated by the image of God through man in fellowship you see Genesis not just about a tree and a snake and weird people with long names it's about the glory of God filling the earth in man and in woman and in his people in community in fellowship and all that that means and we'll talk about some of that in more detail <clears throat> do you have the Bruce Ware comment there let me pass it by and you read it later okay and please read it very carefully because I think it's a wonderful wonderful description of what this community is to look like and as you read that please do what I need to do regularly is judge my own function in the body as a husband as a father a grandfather as a member of the church as a pastor whoever I am in the world in relation to this description of how I am to function in order to be the true image of God let's talk very quickly about the function of the image verse 24 <clears throat> we skip down remember we, we move some of these verses around we're not going to go into every verse in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 therefore what a man shall leave his mom and them and he shall do what cleave or hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one now why in the world is God saying the two shall become one what is he emphasizing what is he accentuating that the two walk as one thus manifesting the unity 
that exists within God among the three persons. Manifesting the fellowship, the community within God. Because you remember the word one in verse 24, echad, <laughs> you know, that E-C-H-A-D, that echad in verse 24 is the same, and it means unity now, is the same word of Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Remember, we did that a week or two ago. One meaning only and one meaning unity or together. And so the two become one. Why is this so important? just want to give you a hint. You don't have to turn there, but if you were to look at Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 31, Paul has been talking, by verse 31, Paul has been talking to the husband, this is your duty, wife, this is what you're supposed to do. Verse 31, he gets to this place and he quotes this scripture. The two shall become one. And once he says the two becoming one, then in verse 32 he says, and this is a profound mystery. What, Pat? The two becoming one. But I'm speaking in relation to Christ and the church. Because the relationship between us and the Lord Jesus mirrors the relationship that exists within God himself. This is the relationship of all relationships. The fellowship of all fellowships. The communion of all communion. The communication of all communication. The cooperation of all cooperation. It's within God. And that's what's so significant for us to know and to function in in order to be in the image of our great God. Amen? That's what life is all about. You see, this verse 24 tells us how they will live with one another in their respective roles in a relationship of love and unity. So in chapter 4 of Ephesians, after Paul has just given us three chapters concerning the theology of the church and the purpose of God in the church. How does he start chapter 4 of Ephesians? Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you, what? That you walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. How? And he describes humility and patience, remember? But look at verse 3. Striving to maintain the unity of What? Of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What unity? Striving to maintain the image and the reflection of the unity that exists within God himself as we relate to one another in our Christian walk. That's what that verse is telling me. So I will miss the hugeness of Paul's meaning if I don't know anything about verse 126 of Genesis. But now that I know that, and you know Paul knew it, so when he's putting this down or dictating that to the uh, scribe, he is remembering, I have to believe, 126 and then 227 uh, and 218 and 224 of Genesis. When he says that, he's pulling all of Genesis into this verse to tell the church this is who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to walk. Why? Because of God. Because we're the image of God on earth. That's what this is all about. You see, the members of the community of the household of faith are to relate to one another. This is what we're supposed to do. We are to relate to one another in an atmosphere of love and mutual care and respect. 
that's a problem. How many of us, may I say us, have ever had any difficulty of relating to others or someone with love, care, and mutual respect? Am I the only one? Okay. How many of us, therefore, have failed to be the image of God, but how many is God continuing to mold us into his image, into the image of Christ, right? Aren't you glad God is good? But do you see the, the necessity now and the significance of why we are to be who we are to be in the church? It's not just that Bill Treby and I need to get along better. It's that Bill Treby and I, when we don't get along or if we do have anything that begins to disunify us, we are in danger of saying something that is not true about God. That's why it is critically important that no matter what happens, we are to be a forgiving and a unifying people. There is no sin committed against any one of us by any one of us that is so dastardly that we dare refuse to forgive and seek the activity of being in unity with one another. Otherwise, if that exists, then God made a mistake when he saved us because he saved us of much more than we ever do to one another. May you say amen. This is why there's so many of these words in the Bible. You know, these obnoxious words, each, one another, each other. Have you ever noticed in the New Testament epistles how many times these guys say one another or another or each or each other? You ought to do a word study and just count them out. They're all over the place. What is about this other stuff? It's community. It's Genesis 1.26 in action. Next week, we're going to talk about Eden. And as you think about Eden, I want you to ask this question. I think I have it in your notes. <clears throat> is Eden, given what God's purpose is in creating man, given that, do you believe that God created Adam and Eve and the rest of us just to be a bunch of farmers in a garden? Or is this a prototype of the most astounding revelation that the Bible gives us. Is Eden to be just a garden or it is a prototype, a beginning revelation of something much more magnificent? As you study this and look at Eden and look at the verses in chapter two about Eden and chapter one, let me give you a big hint. Look at Revelation 21 and 22 and see if you can't see the fulfillment of Eden at the end of the time see you next week